Hi, everyone. My name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosleib. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. Today, we're talking with Professor Jennifer O'Neill about her work on symbolic interactionism and delinquency. Dr. Jennifer O'Neill is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminal Justice at Indiana University, Bloomington. She received her PhD in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the University of Missouri, St. Louis in 2021. Jennifer's primary research interests include developing criminological theory, specifically focusing on rational choice and symbolic interactionist perspectives, as well as investigating the connections between school experiences, adolescent socialization, and delinquent behavior. Her recent work has focused on adolescent legal socialization within the context of the convergence of education and criminal justice institutes. In this episode, we talked to Jen about one of her publications, Symbolic Interactionism, Role Identities, and Delinquency, Examining the Moderating Role of Social Rewards, which was published in the Journal of Crime and Justice in 2023. With that being said, let's bring Jen in. Hi, Jen. Thanks for joining us today. We look forward to talking with you. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. All right. So for today's episode, we're focusing on symbolic interactionism. And this is a theory that we have learned about and we've taught students about very briefly from the undergrad perspective. But we've actually never touched on this at all on this podcast. So we're excited to have you on to get some more information about it. We will discuss it more later, but it does seem like symbolic interactionism hasn't really caught on as like a mainstream, in quotes, theory. So for now, can you just give us an overview very generally of what symbolic interactionism or SI for short is? Yeah, so I can certainly try. It is... So symbolic interactionism is more of a perspective than a theory. So it's this broad umbrella comes out of philosophy and then social psychology and then sociology, where we spend all this time defining our key concepts. So I can talk about the sort of main concepts, part of the perspective that have then been outlined into relationships later on. So I guess you would we'd call me the philosopher, the father of symbolic interactionism, though it doesn't get its name until Bloomer comes along. And it's this perspective on how we make sense of ourselves and how that relates to society. And I think at the time that these ideas start floating around in sociology, there was more of like, I've heard it described this way, like a top-down approach. How does organized society, how do organized social institutions influence the individual. And so there's this understanding of individuals and how they see themselves and their identities based on the way they've been structured in society. And so Mead says, no, it's the other way. We have to start with the individual, kind of this bottom-up approach where individuals interacting with each other assign meaning to things. They derive symbols and gestures and they come to these like agreements on how we're going to communicate and that builds into a larger society. So basic concepts from symbolic interactionism are the idea of the social self, how a person comes to terms with who they are, their identity by viewing themselves from the standpoint of others. And so to come to to define a self, you're getting through things like role takings. That's a major concept in symbolic interactionism. And then you get into these questions of structured roles, 
your role in an institution, your role in society, and how you define that personally with some subjective meanings, your personal experiences. So there's all these like philosophy ideas going on here. But the basic perspective and how we use it, especially in criminology, is this idea of the self being defined through our interactions with others and our perspective of how others view us. And this role-taking behavior in different groups over time. So I don't know if that's a good way to boil it down. It's a large perspective, but that's my attempt. No, that was great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's always a struggle just like in the most simplest of terms, explain what symbolic interactionism is because there's just so much to it. Yeah. But we're going to kind of keep going with this uh, for a couple more questions. So, you know, you just mentioned... You know, we have like these symbols that we attribute meaning to. So, you know, like an example would be like if you see a ring on someone's left ring finger, I think a lot of people would attribute the meaning of, oh, that person is married, right? So we attribute a meaning to these symbols around us. But something that you just mentioned is something like role taking. Can you tell us more about what role taking and role identities are? Yeah. So... When me talks about role taking, it's so big, back to this idea of our identity coming from how we perceive others perceive us. Role taking is the process by which you would project yourself into the standpoint of somebody else and take on their perspective and think about how they expect you to act, how they view you as an object. So role taking is just in your different interactions in your daily life putting yourself into the standpoint of somebody else and viewing yourself as an object. So how do I expect this person to act? How will I react when they behave? And through that process of taking the role of the others, we come to an understanding of what meaning will be applied to our actions. So actually, Mead says when you're growing up, it's kind of a developmental task here. So you're at first in these very specific groups. You're acting with your family and your parents. You're acting with your friend group, your teachers. And role-taking is first very specific. I'm taking the role of my parents. I'm taking the role of friends. And then later on, as you get a more concrete definition of self and your how you fit into society, you can take the role of a general other, the generalized other, where you can just say like, how do other people react and use that to influence your perception of self and then how you're going to behave. So that's role taking. You also asked about role identities. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So role taking is the process of taking the standpoint of others. Role identities. That term comes along later. It's something used by like Nicole and Simmons and Stryker. If you break it down to role and identity, you see there's this, this structural component, like what role are you acting in? So in those structured groups, are you a child? Are you a sister? Are you a wife? Are you an employee? These structured roles. So that carries some connotation based on your perception of how others view that role. That carries some meaning, right? Like how am I supposed to behave as a partner as a sibling as a child but then they also have the subjective component the identities so it's not just understanding your role in the structure but the meaning you've attached to that so you can have these kind of more consistent role related behaviors like mother is supposed to be nurturing 
but then you're also going to define it based on your personal experience interacting with people in that role. So what does that identity mean to you? So that's a role identity is encompassing the structural role and your subjective meaning there. This just makes me think, and I don't know if either of you did this like back in undergrad, if you were taking classes on this, but is this the perspective where people have you cut out like four by four square and then write down like the different identities that you've had? Have you ever done that? Yeah. So yeah, I have, because you can see this, like, this idea of having different roles. It's in other perspectives as well. It's talked about in psychology and just like development in general. And that's where you get ideas of like master status. Like here are all the roles I fulfill and like which one matters the most to me or which one do I spend the most time in? So yeah, all of that relates to, I think the ideas we're talking about in interactionism. Yeah. Master status. That is the word I was trying to think of. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So on a general level, we've kind of covered symbolic interactionism and discussed role-taking and role identities. Now we're interested in asking you about this concept of reflected appraisals, which is tying in with all of these other things. So what are reflected appraisals and how exactly do they fit in with role-taking and role identities? Yeah. So... I would say reflected appraisals and role identities, those are used really similarly just by different people. So that's the kind of another challenge in defining symbolic interactionism is that because it's a perspective, there are all these identity theories, social structural identity theory that come out of it and they use slightly different terms. So (laughs) reflected appraisals are the appraisals that you perceive others make of you. So putting myself into the standpoint of other people. So that's role taking. How are they then appraising me? Like what how do they view me? What do they see me as? That's a reflected appraisal. In terms of like operationalization, you see that measure a lot because it's you can ask questions like, how much do you agree that your friends view you as XYZ? And that would capture your reflected appraisal, your perception of how others appraise you. And so that I've seen reflected appraisal and role identity used kind of hand in hand. I think role identity, because it's used by the like structural symbolic interactionists, it's really attached to that structural role. Like, what does the role of a parent mean to me, a partner, an employee? So that you can make a distinction there where one is like a general attitudinal appraisal of others. But they're both capturing that view that others have of you, your perception of how others view you. And speaking of perhaps using terms interchangeably, maybe this is where Jose and I were struggling with some differences. But is there any distinction between reflected appraisals and then Cooley's looking glass self? I would say that it's reflected appraisals has just gotten more concrete like more a stronger like definition of the concept because Cooley he's a pragmatist who influenced me and then me to starts putting them in one so it's like we have this intellectual heritage of symbolic interactionism where you see people like William James who say we have as many selves as people we interact with and people like Cooley who said she comes up with this distinction between the social self or he says the social self is yourself. And then he talks about the mind and reaction to the social self. And Cooley introduces looking glass. So we understand ourselves by looking in a mirror. Others are a mirror and they reflect back at us. 
So that's certainly a straight line to reflect appraisals. I think he just, when Cooley talks about the looking class self, he talks generally about the idea that we're having appraisals reflected us back at us from others and that that matters to our identity. And then when we get more development from perspective to theory, we can kind of narrow in on what a reflected appraisal actually is. So short answer is, I think they're similar, (laughs) but one is more concretely defined. And through the more concrete definition, we can actually operationalize this concept. Yeah. Right. So I was saying a little earlier that I just recently gave a lecture on symbolic contractionism to my students. And so that's, and it's, I usually do it, and you know, this was no exception. I usually do it as a precursor or a setup for other theories, like labeling theory, because mm-hmm. uh, you know labeling theory was kind of really born out of symbolic interactionism. And so, you know, whenever I teach this theory class, one of the things I like to do is also discuss. So this is what the theory is. This is what it's arguing. These are some of the criticisms, right? So, and so for symbolic interactionism, some of the criticisms. Um, one that people may interpret symbols differently. You know, so I used the example of like the wedding ring earlier, but you know, that's not maybe not a universal thing. Different cultures wear their wedding rings in different. So some of my word on their right hand instead of their left hand, right? Symbols can be differently or inaccurately. Another criticism is that it's too subjective and therefore it's difficult to test the theory. Do you know how scholars have gone about trying to maybe address some of these criticisms of symbolic interactionism? Yeah, so I would, I'll start with the, the second criticism of these kind of processes are too subjective. This, these definitions are like totally hanging on a personal interpretation of interactions. I think that is true, but also it just like resonates with background of the theory that like, truth is there's no objective truth and it comes out of interaction and all that. So I don't really necessarily see it as like a downfall because we see this in a lot of other lanes too. Like, you know, there are perceptual measures you can use. And I think there are a lot of concrete, more concrete, like hypotheses that come out of theories influenced by symbolic interactionism. And so some of the ways that it's been overcome or I guess kind of acknowledged in work is by introducing those ties to structural roles. So like if you look at like the work of Stryker and other sociologists, social structural symbolic interactionism, they can have measures in there for perceptions attached to different roles, but also tie it back to like just to objectively you are in this position you have you carry this role in your family or you're in this position in the workplace. Um so there are ways to there's so many relationships to test coming out of the perspective that you can draw some sort of like standardization across people. But then the other way of going about it, and it gets to your first criticism as well, like the misinterpretation of symbols, is that when you see qualitative work influenced by symbolic interactionism, they're usually interested in like collective behavior in group settings where you can have a sample, you can have participants that have like more shared meaning, and you can get into those methods, allow you to get more into like how are these symbols interpreted, what meaning does it carry in certain contexts. 
And that way you can recognize that not everyone's going to interpret symbols the same way. But if you're narrowing in on a specific reference group and setting, you can get at more consistency. There's qualitative research that probably has methods that can get at that a little bit better. But then there's also just advancements in the quantitative space that lets you measure perceptual, just use perceptual measurement, get at some of these subjective meanings. I think it's a limitation that you're, you have to, like when we get to my own paper, different identities are going to be interpreted differently. That's part of the perspective, right? You have your personal interpretation of the reflected appraisal. So human behavior is messy. I, I still think we should test it. <laughs> okay. So on a similar note, but kind of moving more into what we do know, can you just give us a lay of the land very broadly about the state of the research when it comes to symbolic interactionism? Have we seen an increase in the use of the perspective and how we test it? I would say overall in criminology, which has to be uh, talked about a little separately. I don't think we've seen an increase across all you know research areas. Although I do think it's having a moment in like desistance research. So that is a like a concrete example in criminology that has been using an interactionist framework. So we had like Pattern Austria and Bushways, identity theory of desistance, and then Giordano or neo-median theory, like using a lot of interactionist concepts to understand within-person changes, which is another great way going back to my last question of getting at those subjective meanings. If you can look within the individual, it gives you a little more clarity. So I think we're seeing it in desistance work. And then the labeling piece you see in criminology a lot. I also think it's having... We're seeing it influence like work on gender and race identities and power and status. That, that uses a lot of interactions concepts in that. I think it was like early 2000s, there was this paper about the demise of <laughs> symbolic interactionism. And it was more about how because it's a perspective and it has all these ideas, it gets its place in different disciplines is diffuse because we're just kind of like, we're using this piece and we're using this piece. So I think it's very much still present. I wouldn't necessarily say it's increasing, although you're seeing it more in specific research areas, but the concepts are still there, right? Like it, it influences learning theories like Sutherland's work. That's still very much has its place in criminology. So I don't know that it's on the rise, but I'll say that it's, it's still kicking. It's, and it's still uh, like a notable discipline in sociology and social psych. Right. So let's start moving into your paper, which is titled Symbolic Interactionism, Role Identities and Delinquency, Examining the Moderating Role of Social Rewards. In this paper, you assess whether social rewards moderate the association between reflected appraisals and delinquency. You used the National Youth Survey and you had a final sample of just over 1,400 participants. You looked social rewards as a construct in identity formation, specifically a delinquent identity, and you look at role identities from the viewpoint of peers. So our first question for you is, what was the motivation behind writing this paper? Yeah, so there's I have a couple other papers in this that I'm working on now in this area where I'm really interested in how aspects of the symbolic interactionism perspective can be integrated with 
concepts from rational choice. So that was really a starting point that was percolating in grad school and making me think about things like symbolic interactionism when we talk about role-taking and taking the standpoint of others to think about ourselves and our own behavior. That carries with all these connotations of thinking about the costs and rewards and risks of our behavior. And so I really wanted to look at reflected appraisals, role identities, and how they relate to our perceptions of the costs and rewards of delinquent behavior. So that was one like general idea of how these perspectives can be integrated and how they can inform testing. But at another level, I was just interested in peer influence and how, you know, as I mentioned, Sutherland's influenced by symbolic interactionism, these ideas of definitions and peer influence can be like traced to interactionist processes. So I wanted to see how your one's view of themselves, like their identity in their friend group, how that could be related to delinquent behavior. So I was like Metsueda's work using the reflected appraisal framework. And I thought kind of the next step was to see how these different reflected appraisals relate to our expectation of rewards for delinquency. So as I was reading your paper, something that stuck out to me was when you were describing your sample and you know, because the actual sample of the NYS is a little bit bigger than what you ended up using. So you're talking about, you're kind of walking us through why you removed certain people from your analytical sample. And so you removed people who reported not having any close friends from your analytic sample. And then the reason you give for this was that there's research that shows that people who have no close friends or report having no close friends are substantively different from people who report low levels of peer influence. And so this kind of just stuck out to me a little bit. So I want to ask if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about this, not having close friends versus reporting low levels of peer influence and like what the difference is there. Yeah. So, well, one thing purely methods wise, like a lot of times when we talk about peer influence, our measures are actually asking about friends. So like we're a little more specific than peers, we're talking about like who you hang out with and often use the word friends. So I wanted to distinguish between those who say they didn't have a close group of friends and those who are talking about friends influencing their behavior. And that was, yeah, basically, as you mentioned, based off of the research on social isolates, like DeMuth and Krieger have pieces on adolescents who don't identify any group of friends are considered social isolates or other terms. And they're on average, less delinquent, although there's some confusion over if the isolation is due to like conflict with friends, then that could be a risk factor for delinquency. But they just their delinquency patterns or behavior is a little bit different than somebody who would say, like, I don't have a lot of friends who approve of delinquency or I don't have a lot of delinquent friends. So when we're talking about peer influence and especially if we're measuring it based on their friends. We're looking at two aspects, kind of the normative peer influence, where I hang out with people who transfer definitions that are pro-crime. And then there's also like the situational characteristics, like Osgood opportunity. Like I hang out with a lot of friends and that increases opportunity for crime. Those are like two aspects of peer influence. Both don't 
really come into play if you're talking about somebody who isn't hanging out with friends. So that's why I made that separation. I did like for a robustness check include them as well. It doesn't change the results, but I think we don't know enough about social isolates because then there's also work that the work that says like they're different also shows that sometimes it's very short-lived. Like somebody who says like, I don't have a close group of friends. It could be like, I just got in a fight with them and now I'm not hanging out with anyone. And so it's usually like really short-term relationships, which again would matter to your influence. If you think about like frequency of interacting with people, but it's a more complicated question. So I wanted to separate them out for that reason. It doesn't really change substantively the results, but I think they should be recognized. It's like a different group. Yeah. yeah, no, that makes sense. It's also really now that you're talking about like social isolates, that's just, I see, I feel like that would be a really interesting area of research because I feel like some of them could be actually very influent, like very delinquent involved delinquency involved. I don't know the right term, whereas others wouldn't be. And it's like, why? Not that this has anything to do with your paper, but yeah, it would just be interesting to look at why some would be more involved in delinquency and others not. And then also the length of how long they're isolated for sure. Yeah. And I think, well, just, I agree. Like, I think there's really, especially in terms of like identity as well. Like if you identify as like a loner or something like that, I do think it has important questions and even within the like framework I'm working in, but it was more like, I can't do everything in this paper. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For sure. A different set of questions. Yeah. Okay. So earlier on in the episode, I asked you about reflected appraisals and in your study, you focus on two very specific appraisals, the sociable appraisal and the rule violator appraisal. Can you describe to us what constitutes these two different appraisals? Yeah. So both are measures of how you think others view you. And so the sociable appraisal is trying to get at this, the idea that you are viewed as somebody who gets along well with others and are well-liked. Those are like the two measures that go into it, but on a broader like conceptual level, it's like a pro-social identity seen as like a well-liked person and like affable, easygoing, those kinds of traits. I think we're limited in the measures, but it was a more pro-social identity, which is why I was interested in it. Because on the flip side, we have the rule violator appraisal, which captures things like the perception that you're a bad kid, a troublemaker, or that you break the law. And that already has these negative connotations. Even if somebody personally was like, that's what I want to do. It has societal level, like a negative connotation that you're doing something wrong. So both of those appraisals were linked to delinquency an increase in delinquency in prior work. And so I wanted to focus on those two that capture these different meanings where one is specifically defined by behavior, so breaking rules. And one is just this like, I think more abstract idea of just being like a good, get along well with others kids. So one of the issues with it is that like, I want to know more about what that social means when people are saying, yeah, that's how I view myself. But I, in contrast to the other one, I thought that was an interesting way to look at things. Yeah. 
And you just said that both of them have been linked to delinquency in prior work. And, you know, I instantly went back to like high school where it was like always the popular kids who were involved in, you know, minor forms of delinquency, like drinking underage and so on. And so can there be an overlap between these two appraisals? Can someone be sociable and a rule violator at the same time? Or is it like one or the other? Yeah, there can be an overlap. And there was in the sample, I had to use them as um, controls because you can think that your friends view you as a troublemaker. And also, as it gets into exactly what you're talking about. And that's kind of the lane I went down in the research is looking at like popular kids and offending because... And it gets at this general idea that like delinquency in so many ways is normative in adolescence. It's like actually could be and totally expected behavior, like minor rule breaking. So you can certainly say you're appraised both ways. And then I think just on a more like cognitive level, there'd be distinctions in navigating how to behave. And that goes in interactionism and role taking. It's the idea that when you get to a situation where like habits can't guide you, you, that's when you're more likely to project into the standpoint of others and think about, okay, like what behavior am I going to pursue here? So I think, especially in adolescence, you're in these problem situations, right? Where like I'm expected to like go along with the group and be easygoing here, but I'm also viewed as like a rule violator. So what does that mean for this situation? Like, how am I supposed to act? Yeah. Okay. So let's start getting into like the results of your paper. So you had two main hypotheses that you were interested in. So the first hypothesis was that the social appraisal would be associated with higher levels of delinquency for those who had higher levels of perceived social rewards. And so we want you to break this down a little bit for us. So why did you theorize this was going to be the relationship? Yeah. So one thing about role taking and developing these more like specific role identities in a reference group is that it's supposed to be a developmental process where especially as an adolescent, you're not quite clear and you're experimenting. Like I think my friends view me this way, but like, what does that actually mean? So I'm wanting to know how a behavior like delinquency gets linked to an appraisal. So if they expect me to act this way, that means being delinquent or breaking a rule or, you know, doing whatever in that situation. So I expected based on way role taking is defined in role identities that when you're taking the role of another and working out how do they view me, how do they expect me to act, you're also thinking about will they reward this behavior? Like, Do they approve of it? Do they think it's cool? Is it good? So I expected that rewards and the perception that a behavior would be rewarded by your friends is something that helps you define delinquency as identity consistent. So if somebody says, my friends expect me to be sociable, sometimes that might not mean engaging in delinquency. But if you're trying to navigate a situation and you're saying, my friends expect me to be sociable, and I know that they approve of delinquency, then you're going to link that behavior to the identity. And then maybe it becomes more habitual over time. So that's breaking down the hypothesis, I thought 
in general, on average, kids who identify as sociable might be engaged in a little more delinquency. But that's going to be even stronger for kids who also expect delinquency is rewarded. If they're supposed to get along well with others, go along with the group, and they think their friends think delinquency is cool or approved of in some way, then being sociable is going to come to mean I go along with delinquency and I offend. So that's why I expect that relationship to be stronger. And so what did you end up finding? So I did, I did find support for that hypothesis with the sociable relationship. There was evidence of moderation. Kids who are sociable engage in a little more delinquency than kids who don't have that reflective appraisal. And that relationship is even stronger if they anticipate social reports. So for that one, I supported. And then your second hypothesis then is talking about the rule violator appraisal. And you hypothesize that the rule violator appraisal would be associated with higher levels of delinquency for those who had higher perceptions of social rewards. And so just like before, can you break down this hypothesis and why you thought this would be the relationship? Yeah. So again, based on the process of you expect your friends appraise you as a rule violator. If you also expect that they reward delinquency, I thought the delinquent behavior would be defined as consistent with your role. And so you'd engage in even more offending than those kids who say, yeah, my friends expect me to be a rule violator, but I know they don't approve of delinquency. So I expected the same sort of relationship as with sociable. Rewards are going to strengthen that link. I did not find that. I found moderation actually in the opposite direction. And so what that suggests is that kids who expect that their friends view them as a rule violator, they engage in more delinquency than others. But when you compare all the rule violators to each other and the ones who expect delinquency is rewarded and the ones who don't, actually the kids who identify as rule violators and don't think their friends reward behavior engage in more offending. So it's the opposite direction. It's that the social rewards for delinquency actually weaken that relationship to the behavior. So and what... And I did kind of leave that one as a little more exploratory because of that distinction between the two appraisals. Sociable is this, oh, get along well with others. It's kind of vague. Rule violator is explicitly getting out behavior, right? If you think people view you as a rule violator, that is directly attached to violating rules, right? Breaking laws is one of the questions too. So social rewards acted a little differently I think because of the content of that appraisal, if you're identifying as a rule violator, whether your friends approve of the behavior or not doesn't matter as much to defining the role as it would for somebody who's sociable aware or that appraisal a little more vague. So you consider the expectations of your friends, whether they'll reward or, or disapprove of the behavior. Whereas if you're a troublemaker, rule violator, Maybe that identity is already clear in what actions you're supposed to take. And I also thought, which this would be an empirical question, that it's possible that the rewards of friends is actually not going to be identity consistent then. Like if you're expected to be this troublemaker, then friends approving of the behavior wouldn't be role consistent, right? You're expected to be kind of rebellious and like not act in the way people will reward. 
And so that could be why I find moderation in the opposite direction. Rule violators more likely to offend than non-rule violators, but expecting rewards is going to weaken that association. Whereas if your friends disapprove, that's more rule consistent. That makes more sense. That's like exactly what I was going to ask if... And I didn't know if there'd been any research on it. I'm guessing not since you just said it would be an empirical question, but it, yeah, it's this idea of like, oh, they approve of it, yeah, but you wouldn't want them to necessarily. So it's, it's also like a complication with measuring rewards. Like the question, the operationalization I had available to me in the data was like, do friends approve of delinquency? And it's not clear what that means. I think having more like nuance and like, do they think it's cool or like, do they want you to do it? Like, how do they reward it? Does you have an increase in status because of that? Or is it just like something that they don't have strong feelings about? That could kind of get at, am I acting in a way that I know is going to be disapproved of because that's my thing? Like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> or right. is it something more specific than that? Yeah. Or even looking at like if there's monetary rewards versus status rewards and how that impacts it. Yeah, super interesting. And kind of already started to delve into this a little bit, but what are the implications of of this study for future research? I think so. One goal like for my overall motivation was to start like really tying in these expectations of rewards, costs, and risks into an interactionist framework. So I think one like advantage of the paper was just to show like, yeah, that works. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. That leads to more questions, but it also like makes theoretical sense. It makes empirical sense to consider how reflected appraisals mark up with these expectation of rewards is what I talked about, but I'd also like to get into other types of rewards, other types of costs. So I think that was one indication was like to just keep moving forward with this work. But I also, because I found different relationships for sociable and rule violator, I think it gets at the need to just have more of these measures available because we're so limited in reflective appraisals, but be able to tease out the different meanings attributed to these roles. Like I expect that... I'm supposed to act this way, but what does that mean? Like, what do those behaviors mean? And if one is, I want to stand out, I want to be rebellious, then rewards are going to act differently versus one that's going along well with others. So I think just showing that contrast and kind of exploring that more is an important first step there because a lot of the work on reflected appraisals focuses on that rule violator. Like, or like a criminal or troublemaker of even other data sets, other work has used like an explicitly criminal or delinquent identity, which is really interesting work. And but especially when we're talking about adolescence, that you can have other identities that relate to delinquency. A lot of times we're not thinking about it as a criminal behavior. So I think that was an important step in showing that contrast and hopefully informing future directions with it. I just had one other question because we talked about how this sociable and rule violator appraisal could kind of mesh together. Did you look at that in your study of like people who maybe scored higher on both of these aspects? That was one thing that it's a pretty small group that score high in both because they're continuous measures 
they and they're negatively correlated in the sample. So it's like not likely, but you can have like, you know, you could be like neutral on both, which then right. I don't really even know what that <laughs> what that means. But I would like to look into that work as well, just like what it means to have these two appraisals at the same time. That's one of the challenges with the reflected appraisals is that you're trying it's great in that you're getting at this subjective meaning of like how your friends expect you to act. But even within those questions, it's like, oh, that can be <laughs> interpreted yeah. so differently. So yeah. Well, those are all the main questions that we had for you today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. If anyone has any questions, where can people find you? Email, Google Scholar, X, formerly known as Twitter. I think email would be the best. I try to stay off the social media. I know that it's great for others. It's not great for me. But so, yeah, you can use my IU email address. It's just jenoneal at iu.edu. I would be so open to a cold email. It's fine with me, especially (laughs) when you're an early career scholar. Like, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so great. much, Jen. It was great having you on and getting to see you again. I know yeah. it's been a while. Hopefully we catch you at ASC if you're going to be there this year. Yeah, I'll be there. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm always down to talk about interactionism and its challenges and triumphs. <laughs> yes. It yeah. seems like there's a lot on both sides. So yeah. <laughs> keeps it interesting. Yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.